Today is day one of our winter 2022 seven-day session. It's uh, 16th of July. And um, for the first maybe two or three Teishos, we're going to um, look at suffering. Going to be reading some passages from a book called Turning Suffering Inside Out by Darlene Cohen. A Zen approach to living with physical and emotional pain. It's going to be one of our texts anyway. Um, suffering is is a good place to start. Um, the Buddha said that one gets an inclination towards the spiritual life because of the existence of suffering. So suffering, we can understand suffering as a, as an essential aspect of the path. Thich Nhat Hanh said something like, um, "When we when we experience suffering, suffering is is at that same time showing us a way out. Suffering, deeply understood, is uh, wisdom." picking um, this book by Darlene Cohen because it, it gives some very concrete sort of com contemporary examples of suffering. But if we were to try and, and uh, sum it up, um, you can hear a couple of, of definitions. And this is Dukkha. This, this first noble truth, which is also one of the characteristics or marks of existence, along with impermanence and no self. I don't know who said this, but they, they said, Dukkha is the feeling that something that was supposed to happen didn't. Or the, the psychologist Mark Epstein said, the inevitability of our own humiliation. Turn now to our text and the chapter, the first chapter in the section on suffering, and its title is The Problem, Caught Under the Ever-Turning Wheel of Grasping and Aversion. This is, this is one way to describe the first noble truth of Dukkha. And, and Cohen starts out off by giving some, some modern urban examples. Catherine was a highly successful financial consultant in downtown San Francisco. Oh, and I should say, before I get into this, that... Uh, Darlene Cohen, um, the late Darlene Cohen, was a certified massage and movement therapist and a Zen teacher and the author of Arthritis, Stop Suffering, Start Moving, Everyday Exercises for Body and Mind. And she was a Zen teacher in the tradition of the San Francisco Zen Center. So the lineage of... Um, 
Suzuki Roshi. Catherine was a highly successful financial consultant in downtown San Francisco, a young woman thriving in a man's world, reveling in all the rewards that business acumen can bring. Luxurious condo, designer wardrobe, everything but disability insurance. After her car accident, she found herself living with and financially dependent upon her mother again, just as she had been as a child. So, our first example, impermanence. Things turning out differently from what we expect. And in this... uh, American example, no ACC to soften the blow. Another example, Ricardo played soccer every weekend before he herniated a disc at work. Soccer games had been the centre of his social world and his prowess the cornerstone of his identity. He had been married only a year but he could no longer make love to his energetic, vivacious wife. Forced into the role of house husband while his wife supported them, he was depressed and humiliated. It's, it's a natural process for us to um, take on these, these identities based on our, our talents, our prowess, but we're setting ourselves up for disappointment when we do because of this law of impermanence. The, of course, the, the Buddha was uh, taught by seeing the four sights, what are known as the four sights, the first three were a sick person, an old person, and a corpse. The third example she gives, two years after her adored sister died of cancer, Emily seemed to be functioning just fine. She worked, had a family life, pursued hobbies. But suddenly and unpredictably, she still burst into tears and cried effusively. It was as if her sister's death had opened up some old, deep wound that would never heal. Sickness, old age and death. Another example. Melanie was the overworked office manager of a small construction firm owned by other members of her family. She found that the scheduling, correspondence, billing and payroll responsibilities demanded much more than one full-time employee. To keep up with her job, she worked into the night and on weekends. Not only did she worry constantly about the work that was not getting done, but she was also beginning to bitterly resent her uncle's refusal to hire an assistant for her. Her waking hours were now defined by stress and anxiety so severe that she was developing physical symptoms. In these stories we see painful uh, 
changes, physical changes, but also in each there's, there's these um, emotional narratives. She goes on to say, Many of us in the course of living our everyday lives endure terrible suffering, grief or anxiety or depression or physical pain that won't go away. I think of this kind of suffering as mundane, anguish, affliction rendered bearable because it's part of our everyday lives, like drawing breath or doing the dishes. If we ever got relief from it, we would suddenly apprehend how dreadful it actually is. Depression and anxiety can have, be so overwhelming that they are as crippling as a disease or an injury. When we are chronically depressed or anxious, we become so trapped in the habit of thinking terrifying or destructive thoughts that we simply cannot function with a clear mind. Our own feelings are no longer our touchstone for reality. This is a slight tangent, but I think it relates here. Uh, reminds me when she she talks about um, becoming becoming used to the the suffering and just having it as part of one's life and not realizing quite how painful it is. I mean, Thich Nhat Hanh says something that sort of switches it round the other way. He says. Uh, when we have a toothache, we know that not having a toothache is happiness. But later, when we don't have a toothache, we don't treasure our non-toothache. We often we don't necessarily treasure... When we don't, when we're not depressed, when we're not... Uh, anxious but they really are happiness these um, the, the non-occurrence of these these painful states others of us may have contracted a physically debilitating disease or been injured in such a way that our lives and those of our family are, have been changed forever it doesn't even take a specific loss to experience mundane anguish we humans, just because everything changes all the time, we suffer. Having once achieved some goal, we can't rest our laurels. All of life's circumstances are dynamic, ever evolving into something else. We clutch at security in vain. Think here of uh, sportsmen and women, or, or movie stars as examples of this, that... Um, they say you're only as good as your last game or your last film, your last book. You never really arrive in the way that you uh, long for. She goes on. I myself have had rheumatoid arthritis, a very painful and crippling condition, for 20 years. And the stress of the disease, the fear of the future and the despair at what had been lost already, 
is often worse than the physical pain that I am suffering at any particular moment. When the disease first struck me, I was forced to stay in bed. I lost 40 pounds. I couldn't dress myself, hold the phone receiver, or get up from the toilet unassisted. I was completely overcome by unremitting pain, fatigue, and despair. In four months of deterioration, I lost everything that meant anything to me, reliance on a strong young body, my achievements and the sense of self-worth they brought me, my pleasure in being a sexually attractive woman, my identity as a mother, and my ability to do the required practices and sustain myself in the community in which I lived as a student of Zen meditation. I became isolated from everyone I knew by my pain and fear, and ultimately even by the consuming effort I had to make to do any little thing, like get up from a chair, pick up a cup of tea, and so on. How do we live through unbearable situations like a catastrophic disease without being destroyed? How do we deal with the mundane anguish of our everyday lives? How do we continue to live under crushing stress? And even further, how do we not just get through these things but have a rich, full and worthwhile life that we actually want to live under any circumstances? Many of us go through life keeping this, these, these sorts of questions at bay because we imagine that uh, disease or, or losing somebody we love is something that happens to other people. This is surely the import of the, the, the story of the Buddha seeing the four sights, the sickness, old age, death, and a, and a monk in meditation. Surely in, in his life up to that time, he would have experienced or, or seen, that is, uh, sickness, old age, and death around him in the palace. But they hadn't really sunk in existentially. And when he, when he went out into the, into the town around the palace, that was when he, he was receptive, he was... He was open to the true meaning of this for us existentially. If there's, there's no security that we can grasp what that means in terms of how we live our lives. She continues... It might at first seem easiest to ignore mundane anguish, but if this attitude hardens into a way of life, then chronic anxiety, loss of sleep, or physical symptoms may appear and force us to face the fact that something has to change. This may mean that if so much of our lives involves stress and pain and suffering, we actually have to face and acknowledge our suffering in order to live our lives fully. 
we may need to become familiar with the thoughts and feelings that define our suffering to us. Notice how we as individuals perceive our own suffering and the suffering of those around us and catch the exact moment when we decide it's too much and automatically tune out. If we don't acknowledge our pain, we usually don't feel our pleasure strongly either. Life takes on a zombie-like tenor. One of the saddest stories a client ever told me came from an elderly woman who sought my help in dealing with her arthritis. With her husband, she had worked long and hard for some years in order to afford their dream vacation, a cruise to the Caribbean islands. She and her husband had never allowed themselves any pleasures in their ordinary lives because they were saving everything for their vacation of a lifetime. When they finally had enough money to take the, their month-long trip, they were beside themselves with excitement. The time that they had been looking forward to for so long had just arrived. After they returned, I asked my client how the trip had gone. Shaking her head, she said, it was disappointing. We were given an itinerary at the beginning, listing all the activities, meal times, and stops we would make. It seemed so exciting at first. We did everything, ate all the meals and stopped at all the different islands to shop and sightsee. But we were always looking at the itinerary to see what was coming next. Somehow that seemed more exciting than what we were doing now. What happened was that we were always looking forward to the next event. Finally, the trip was over and it was like it never happened. She and her husband had spent so many years ignoring the life that was under their noses and available to them, looking forward to a life that was to come someday, that when some day arrived, they couldn't rise out of their habit pattern to meet it. They had been focused on the future for so long, they couldn't refocus on the present. It receded like the rest of their lives into habit and routine. Her plaintive story brought tears to the eyes of listeners when she told it again at a meditation retreat. And hopefully it struck fear into everybody's heart. Because if we continually choose to blank out our feelings about our mundane suffering and always keep our eyes on the future, how different are our lives from those of this woman and husband? And the ways in which we do this can be quite subtle. Are we doing this, for instance, with, a, with uh, insight into our practice? Are we keeping our eyes on the future when that happens? Instead of realizing that it's right in front of us at this moment. What is it that you must have in order to have a rich, fulfilling life, relatively free of dead or numbed out spots? I don't think you have to have the perfect body buffed up from the gym or the right man or woman waiting for you at night, freedom from economic pressures, extensive training in spiritual disciplines, or even a meaningful job to be deeply involved in your life. You don't even have to change the circumstances of your life to enrich it vastly. 
I think you can engage your life and sink your roots deeply into every situation in the midst of high stress, terrible pain and suffering, physical disability or paralyzing anxiety. You only need to break the bad mental habit of living your life on automatic pilot and cultivate the necessary skills to actually be present enough to live the moments of your life, however miserable or boring your life situations might seem when you compare them to your fantasies. You need to learn to be alive for all of your life, to be present as much as you can, not to pick and choose the moments that you think are worthwhile to be alive and then be numb for the rest. Because just as a muscle gets weak from disuse, so your ability to be present in your life fades if you don't practice it. You need to learn how to be alive for all of your life to be present as much as you can, not to pick and choose the moments you think are worthwhile to be alive and then be numb for the rest. Not to pick and choose. Think of the line at the beginning of the firm faith in mind that we chant. <coughs> the great way is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose. When preferences are cast aside, the way stands clear and undisguised. It's not that we won't have preju uh, uh, preferences, prejudices for that matter, but, but we cast them aside. We don't base our life on our preferences. She goes on to quote a well-known uh, passage from an early um, Thich Nhat Hanh, book. He says that there are two ways to wash the dishes. The first is to wash the dishes in order to have clean dishes, and the second is to wash the dishes in order to wash the dishes. He says if we wash them only to get them out of the way with an eye to the cup of tea after, we are not alive during the time that we are washing the dishes. In fact, we are completely incapable of realizing the miracle of life while standing at the sink. If we can't wash the dishes, the, the chances are we won't be able to drink our tea either. We will only be thinking of other things, barely aware of the cup in our hands. Thus we are sucked away into the future, incapable of actually living one minute of life. We, if we pay attention, we'll catch ourselves already thinking about the next task or adding something to our to-do list. Cohen continues, our intelligence and dignity themselves are developed by our being alive for everything, including the mundane anguish of our lives. Just as our awareness of our sensations, of our experience, with no object or idea in mind, is the practice of not preferring any particular state of mind. Let me just read that sentence again. 
just our awareness of our sensations, of our experience, with no object or idea in mind, is the practice of not preferring any state of mind. Intimacy with our activity and the objects around us connects us deeply to our lives. This connection to the earth, our bodies, our sense impressions, our creative energies, our feelings, other people, is the only way I know of to alleviate suffering. To me, our awareness of these things, without preference, is meditation. A meditation that synchronizes body and mind. This synchronization, the experience of deep integrity, of being all of a piece, is a very deep healing. It is unconventional to value such a subtle experience. It is not encouraged in our culture. We're much more apt to strive to feel special, uniquely talented, particularly loved. It's extraordinary to be willing to live an ordinary life, to be fully alive for the laundry, to be present for the dishes. We overlook these everyday connections to our lives, waiting for the big event. She puts that in capitals. This, this um, need to be special um, in its most extreme forms, we can see it in, in mass shooters or in, in ram raiders. Next section is, is entitled Grasping and Aversion, the Ever-Turning Wheel of Pain and Pleasure. And in here she's moving from the first noble truth, unenlightened life is, is suffering, and moving on to the, the second one, the cause of our suffering. Uh, tanha or thirst, this, this deep visceral wanting, which um, manifests in the, his two sides, the side, the grasping and the aversion. You could say, or you could say, um, that solidifies into greed or hatred. She starts off, if you're like me, your daily emotional life is like being tied to a wheel, traveling over all kinds of different terrain, ranging from sun-spattered gardens to suffocating mind. This, this was an image that was um, used in, in uh, medieval times, the wheel of fortune, with, with people stuck on the, the rim of the wheel. So sometimes... They're on the up and up as they come to the top of the, of the uh, rotation of the wheel. But then once they get to the top, then down, down, down to the bottom. And then up, up, up again, down, down, down. An image of our fortunes, our, our circumstances.
you just keep going up and down, hour after hour. First of all, there's the basic mood I wake up with, which provides the background against which I'm going to interpret the events of the early morning. If that mood is energetic and expansive, I will be predisposed toward everything that happens. If that mood is sour or shaky, everything that happens will be an imposition on my consciousness, an ambush from an aggressive and demanding outer world. How we experience the world um, is dependent on what filters we throw up. It's dependent upon our state of mind. The Dalai Lama said, all suffering in this life is created by an unsubdued mind. Or another Vajrayana teacher said, this one Jigme Lingpa, we are ourselves the place wherein our pain is all prepared. The basic mood can be changed by anything that happens during the day. If I get a phone call from a good friend while I'm doing my morning exercises and we hang up having shared plenty of laughter, I'm ebullient as I dress. But then I put on a well-loved skirt and feel the snugness of the fit. I'm immediately upset by the reminder that I've put on some weight in the last few years. Even when I pull another better-fitting skirt out of the closet, I'm not conjoled. My self-disgust tape starts running. I'm fat. I've lost my girlhood figure. And I'm just another stout matron. Nobody special anymore. How many of these, these kinds of, of tapes do we have running that we've heard so many times, but they still continue to, to bite us? And how... This self-talk is so tied up with our attitudes about others that the, the judgment that's implicit there in I'm just another stout matron, that's, that's, we probably pick that up from society in terms of how, how the general society regards older women. We internalize this stuff. And it's, it's painful to us and it's painful to those that we, we stereotype in this way. And we, we become those, those ones who are stereotyped, often. Okay. I've got to um, a lesson in that recently with my diagnosis of Parkinson's and r- realizing in my thinking that I, I had uh, prejudices against disabled people that I didn't realize I had. Awkward feelings.
she continues, this is with her, in, this, um, in her self-discussed tape. But then I managed to pull out together an outfit. It's a good hair day, a little lipstick, and hey, the total effect isn't that bad. I begin to feel a little space in the diaphragm area. I've got some breathing room in there after all. The day could be salvaged. The phone rings. It's a client cancelling her arthritis therapy appointment with me. She didn't foresee that she would have to study for an exam tomorrow instead of see me, though she was desperate when she made the appointment. For me, it's a buzz of irritation. I could have scheduled the desperate person who called yesterday. The breathing room I got from looking good vanishes. I voice my annoyance at the late notice she's given me, although it is within the 24-hour safety zone. She's intimidated by my irritation and her tone is appeasing. I don't allow myself to be completely appeased. We make a new appointment. I hang up annoyed with her, angry at my unreasonable reaction, and the day is dark again. My self-pity tape kicks in. I'm unappreciated by my clients. I don't realize, who don't realize how much I do for them and how valuable my time is, blah, blah, blah. The phone rings again. This time it's a friend who leads a weekly meditation group. My group enjoyed your talk so much the last time you came, she say, he says with great enthusiasm. I wonder if you'd come again and give a talk in two weeks. His ebullience penetrates my dark energy. My heart is lifted out of its self-pity and another, more pleasant tape starts running. At last, my wisdom has been recognised. His group members will sit smiling back at me while I expound my own personal version of the Dharma. I'll tell a few stories. We'll all laugh. They'll adore me and I'll be happy. And then she comments, this is a good tape. I think, ironically, because, of course, a good tape uh, follows the same law, uh, that law of the wheel of fortune, and what, what goes up comes down. I enter the kitchen to make my morning tea with a broad smile on my face. I love my kitchen. Every object has some meaning, some connection to a friend. I got married late in life, so I still have wedding gifts I use. I love kitchen utensils and the sounds they make while being used, running the water into the kettle, the clink of its bottom on the burner, the whoosh of the glass flame going on. Soon the aroma of my tea fills the room. Life is good. I cut a peach and banana into a bowl and turn on the refrigerator to get the yogurt. Turn to the refrigerator to get the yogurt to round out my delicious, nutritious breakfast. My eyes search the top shelf where it usually is, and a small twinge of fear tightens my chest. I don't see the yogurt. My eyes then go to the bottom shelf, their shifting movements a little more frantic, and then finally, disbelievingly, I understand there's no yogurt. How can this be? Other family members have finished it off, not considering that I need nutrition more than any of them. I slam the door shut, angry, hurt, undone. There is the fruit glistening in the bowl. 
I can't even get my mind around any substitute. It's all so tragic. I leave the kitchen broken-hearted and start preparing the therapy room for my first client. It's barely 9 a.m. So she, she goes on like this um, in great detail, um, itemizing the, the ups and downs of her morning. She gets another call, and it's a, a facility where she's been teaching, cancelling her work there. She says, my mega tape starts running. Not the one I know personally, that I am not the one about how I personally am unappreciated, but the one about how the whole world is too blind to realise that the kind of work I and other visionaries do is indispensable a contribution to everybody's sanity and well-being. Now I'm really upset. Having been hurled into a craving state of mind, I wander into the kitchen, make myself some toast and eat the fruit I cut this morning without even tasting it. I glance at the clock on the microwave. It's not even noon and I've been all over the map, in heaven, in hell, in summer's bounteous garden, in winter's bleak landscape. This is my emotional life at its best. It's most even. What I've just described is a normal morning in a regular, ordinary life, not one in which any crisis has taken place. My grandson got off to childcare, my son and husband to their jobs. Our home is still standing with all the services working. Our car is parked out at the curb waiting for my use later in the day. It languishes securely in its parking place. No one has crashed into it during the night, as has happened twice before. And despite my rheumatoid arthritis, I'm not in great pain this morning. So my emotional life is playing itself out within the fairly constricted limits of an ordinary day. We could add here, um, in, the, in the fairly constricted limits of a, a comfortable privileged life when we step back from it an affluent life and by world standards she says what is human life about I suspect the half day I described above is typical from, of most of us who continue to stay in touch with our feelings instead of obliterating them. We recoil from plain, pain. We embrace pleasure. That's it in a nutshell. Can we find any neutral thoughts in our brains? We might locate a sensation or two that qualify as neutral. And actually, this is the way that the Buddha taught about feeling tones. That, that everything we experience, all the sensations, um, all, the, um, all that comes to us by means of, of the, the five skandhas, the body and the mind, um, are, we either experience the most pre pleasurable, painful, or neutral. 
and we grasp then, then on top of that, as another step, we grasp at the pleasurable, we push away or reject the unpleasant, and we will often just ignore the neutral, even when it, it needs to be um, acknowledged. The overwhelming majority of our thoughts and impulses concern our relentless grasping after pleasure and avoidance of pain. We get trapped in that. Most of, of us do without respite forever. The great stories of our civilization, all the tragedies ever written, the tales that come down to us through the ages, have as their theme the quest for pleasure or the grief of loss. Any of our lives could be such a tale. It does not occur to most of us that we are virtual prisoners of our primal preferences, positive or negative, but we are. This is the, the nature of tana, this, this thirst, cause of our sorrow. I know not everyone as, will, as willing as I to entertain these emotional characters inside me who seize my full attention, one after the other, all day long. Many people find this unbearable, destabilizing, exhausting, and they develop strategies to avoid strong feeling. They're willing to sacrifice feeling altogether in order to get rid of the bad feelings. Some people hold on desperately to the neutral territory. Stuff happens to them, but they just keep on as if it hadn't. Their world is gray and undefined, comforting like fog. The sun may not shine there, but neither are there hurricanes and tornadoes. And next um, she goes on to um, uh, look at different strategies that we use in order to um, try and get off the wheel. Um, but we won't, we'll wait and look at, look at that tomorrow and just f um, finish up with some more, um, a couple more ways of, of um, characterizing our suffering, or dukkha. Eckhart Tolle says, the pain that you create now is always some form of non-acceptance some form of unconscious resistance to what is. Uh, Ajahn Mun, who is um, a teacher, I think, of um, uh, Ajahn Chah, who people may be um, familiar with, he reformulated the Four Noble Truths um, in, in a different order. He put the, the um, cause of suffering first. He said, the mind that goes out in order to satisfy its moods is the cause of sorrow, suffering rather. Say that again. The mind that goes out in order to satisfy its moods is the cause of suffering. 
The result that comes from the mind going out in order to satisfy its moods is suffering. The mind seeing the mind clearly is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. The result of the mind seeing the mind clearly is the cessation of suffering. What does he mean when he talks about the mind going out? Um, it, this is another way of, of talking about our, the way in which our mental energy grasps at things. It's also sometimes described as, as, as our sense gates um, leaking. Our, our energy goes out towards what we perceive as objects that we either desire or are, want to get rid of or are aversive to. So that's, that's one way of, of understanding our suffering is the, how we... Um, how our mind becomes leaky. It becomes we we uh, we become unstable because we're putting our reliance or our hopes in what what can't be relied on, which is fundamentally uh, unstable, changing. And because we do this, we suffer. But to see clearly this process, the mind seeing the mind clearly, that is, is the actual path to relief from our suffering, cessation in the classical um, terms. Cessation is, is a way of talking about uh, nibbana, no leaking, no going out in order to latch on to this or that or push this or that away. The result of the mind, seeing the mind clearly, is nirvana. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. <coughs> All beings without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to